The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. And the winner is... Hello, I'm Ben McKechn. <laughs> and I'm his acupuncturist, Mark Hadley. Well, welcome to The Big Picture, episode 97 for the week beginning March 5. Coming up on today's show, Miss Sloane. She's like Miss Sloane, your first class teacher, except she's ruthless, power hungry and won't let you play at recess. She sounds very much like my first class teacher. The problems of small town Australia and Jasper Jones and the top five political dramas, way more exciting than Question Time. Uh Uh-huh. G'day, Sam Robinson. Men. <laughs> that, that's the best greeting you can come up with. Men. I'm I'm disappointed. There's no tuxedos after the Oscars. Ah, uh, uh, well, I am wearing a Vera Wang. No, you're not. <laughs> what? Well, you don't own a Vera <laughs> Wang. A Vera Wang singlet? Yeah, you know they're exclusive. Okay, right. I'm sorry. Right. I'd show you the break copyright. <laughs> right, well, let's move on from what's on the red carpet fashion to what is in cinemas this week. What is coming out, Ben? Gentlemen, Kong 3D Skull Island is coming out on Thursday. So here's what we can definitely tell you about this film. It's about Kong, as in King Kong. <laughs> it's in 3D, and I believe it's set on Skull Island. Has yeah. he lost his crown? There you go. I, I don't know. I, we'll, I guess we'll find out. He's a more democratic monkey these years. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big questions I think that gets answered by this film is, what would you do if you won the Best Actress Oscar a couple of years ago? Well, Brie Larson decided that after her Oscar win, <laughs> she would go in the next movie about a giant gorilla. So Brie Larson... Larson is in Kong 3D, so is sometimes Loki from the Avengers movies, Tom Hiddleston. And it's got a really cool Apocalypse Now looking p- poster. It's like the island of lost actresses. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, and very quickly, also out this Thursday, is a movie called A Few Less Men, which I'm really amazed that this movie actually exists because it's a sequel to a film called A Few Best Men mm. that was out about five or six years ago. An Aussie comedy that, as far as I knew, didn't go very well. It was a little bit like The Hangover set in Australia, but... Here comes another sequel. A few less men is start, is opening on Thursday, for, I guess for fans of the first one. If you actually saw it, I saw it and. Fan, I am not. <laughs> okay. Right, what's on the TV, Mark Hadley? Well, TV this week. Uh, check out the ABC on March 8, which is this Wednesday. In fact, actually, it's going to be exclusively via iView. At midnight, they'll release Pop Ability. Okay, now this program follows the Sisters of Invention, the world's first pop girl group with disabilities. Hmm. So determined to challenge society's preconceived ideas about who can be a pop star and who can't, the group are getting ready to release an ambitious music video to accompany their debut album. But can they break free of the tough reality of living with disability and also society's expectations? Well, this is going to be unforgettable one way or another. So check it out. It's an exclusive on ABC iView. Basically, you'll be able to watch it from Wednesday, March 8 on. And on streaming this week, the Netflix original Burning Sands. Burning Sands? Burning Sands cool starts title. on March 10. Now, this actually appeared at the Sundance Film Festival in January, and the film was highly rated among the attendees of the festival. It stars Alfie Woodard and delves deep into the issue of college hazing. We don't so much have that over here uh, in Australia, but the idea of basically forcing people to go through what can sometimes be or often humiliating, but sometimes very violent and, you know, very scarring uh, activities just to make their place in a college. So this Mm -hmm. is all about a young man who must decide whether to honour his code of silence or stand up against the intensifying underground violence associated with his college. All right. Entertainment news. Gentlemen, you will be very pleased to hear, I'm sure, that legendary actress Angela Lansbury is <gasps> joining the cast of Mary Poppins Returns. I want to start singing the uh, soundtrack to Murder, She Wrote. Please don't. Um, <laughs> instead, just hear me out. And that uh, the, There is a sequel coming, if you hadn't heard, to the 1964 Walt Disney original Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins Returns will be in cinemas in the next couple of years. Emily Blunt is starring as... Mary Poppins, but Angela Lansbury, probably best remembered for Murder, She Wrote, or Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and all kinds of other movies and TV shows. She is going to be playing the Balloon Lady. So see her <laughs> on screens in Mary Poppins Returns on December 2018. Put that in your calendar now. Oh, I think I can actually top that. Well, close in terms of returns. Murder on the Orient Express oh, is being back. remade. I know, yeah. The famous Agatha Christie mystery is being remade by none other than Kenneth Branagh. Okay, so Branagh known for such films as Thor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? Not Sorry. a fan? Oh, I, I am, but it's just like I can't believe how 
I love our producer. She's actually put that right at the top of the list of known as Naomi Johnson <laughs> Thor. Okay, but also Jack Ryan. Yeah, you know, it doesn't really go well Mate, after this. Doesn't he do a whole bunch of Cinder- Shakespeare movies yeah, he as well? Did, much yeah. to do about nothing. Macbeth. You know, Cinderella actually also did as well. Well, he's not only directing Murder on the Orient Express, but he's also starring in the film and playing the lead role. <laughs> nothing narcissistic about that at all. <laughs> of the renowned Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. It'll actually be played by an Englishman who investigates the murder of a wealthy American on a famous train journey. Who else is in it? Uh, Penelope Cruz, yeah. Willem Dafoe, what? Um, Tom Bateman. In fact, Johnny Depp's in it as well. Michelle Pfeiffer. Who is it? It's like a it's like get together of people who really need a film project. <laughs> Judy Dench is in it, which is going to be an amazing. <laughs> I think success. it's a little bit higher caliber than that. <laughs> okay, scheduled to be released in November this year. Oh. All right, true or false time, Mark? You've got a question for us. Well, we've been talking a lot about small towns over the previous weeks, and we'll preview another small town setting when we take a look at Jasper Jones later in the program. But first, let's take a trip down memory lane to the year 2000. <laughs> so <laughs> Jump long ago. In your time machine, if you will, to another small town film, the instant Aussie classic. The Dish. Yeah, The Dish. Okay. This is a film that tells the story of a small town whose biggest claim to fame was an observatory in its backyard and the role it played relaying the the, uh, live television of man's first steps on the moon. It was the top grossing film of 2000. Uh, Where was the film The Dish filmed? Was it in Forbes, Parks, or Wagga. Now, go back. The question is, where was the dish filmed? Where was the dish filmed? Aha, I see, mm. I see. Just yes. wanted to clarify Someone's that. Someone's picked that up straight away. Okay. Where was it filmed? Forbes, Parks, or Wagga? We'll mm. tell you a little more when we come back after this. All right. Well, one of the most anticipated events of this week, uh, other than this show, of course, mm-hmm. uh, was the <laughs> yeah. Academy... Oh, something else? <laughs> yes, the Academy Awards. Oh, oh, yes, yes. On Monday, yes. Well, it's been almost a week since the Oscars were handed out, and so you, Mark and Ben... You've had some time to reflect on what we learned from the Academy Awards 2017 and how our lives will never be the same again. This, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. Mark, there was really going to be no other contender, was there, this year from the Oscars for the most memorable moment out of the, out of the ceremony. Uh, you People would have heard that clip all the way through this week, like constantly, constantly, constantly. I reckon one of the things that's been overlooked in that is how gracious the producer, one of the producers of La La Land, Jordan Horowitz was. He's the guy speaking there who had the presence of mind to stand in front of the world and say, my film actually didn't win it was Moonlight. Please come on stage to collect your Oscar. It's quite and, amazing. And he was actually keen to hand it over to them. He I was. love that. I've been saying, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to hand this to you so everybody knows I didn't feel cheated. There was no you know, concern here. We're still all winners here. But what did you think when you first saw that moment? You know, personally, I felt horror. Okay, mm. look, I've worked, uh, I go back way, way back. So I work, I've worked in live television, okay? And when something happens like that, you know that backstage people are screaming. Mm-hmm. It's like, it might look silent shock on stage, but people are screaming in control rooms, uh, you know, and someone somewhere, Mara and I, my wife's a producer, and so we're sitting there, so, somewhere, somewhere we knew that someone's heart had just fallen to their shoes because it was dawning on them at that moment that they were responsible for something. And that's the moment their career ended, probably yeah. in front of the world. Yeah. It's terrible. Not yet, but it, was a, but it was like the sand moving through the mm. hourglass, the, 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 the drip. And so, yeah, look, what actually happened for us at that point is though you sort of, you know, you go, how could that happen? Oh, my goodness, and all the shame and all the horror and all the worry. Um, we actually took, it's going to sound overly Christian, uh, we as a family took a moment and prayed for that person. You did? Yeah, because we just sort of thought that, you know, at that point, that person had probably been doing their job remarkably effectively to the best of their ability, and then something happened. And PricewaterhouseCoopers has been reamed out over you know the last few days, basically because of this terrible mistake, and will they ever be allowed to do the Academy Awards again, blah, 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 even though they've done it for like 60 years or something. You know, it's people forget that there are real people behind these uh, these problems, and we should actually remember that. Mm. What were the highlights for you? Surely there were some good things that because came Because other things did happen and this year, apart, happened, from, apart from that remarkable La La yeah. Land Moonlight mix-up. There were three for me. Mark, one was that I was right. I was right. <laughs> I, I was telling the world, as other people did this, but I also was doing this, telling the world that Casey Affleck, Affleck was going to win Best Actor Oscar for Manchester by the Sea. He did it. 
I was right. Yes. There was also It this, had to happen eventually. It had to. Like just the balance of probabilities. One of your predictions would come out. So that was one of my highlights. <laughs> one of my highlights. Another one was a guy no one had ever really heard of outside of the movie industry, a guy called Kevin O'Connell. He'd been nominated for 21 Oscars. He's a sound mixer. And he finally won for Hacksaw Ridge. 21. 21. I think um, Meryl Streep's been nominated 20 times. She's won a, a bunch of awards. But Kevin O'Connell, 21 and had never won and got his uh, moment in the sun uh, and the Oscars last week for winning for Hacksaw Ridge. So I think that's a lesson for the kids out there. Keep on trying. You might actually win in the end. But I think the big one for me that stood out was Viola Davis claiming her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Fences. Her speech was like a textbook for what thank you speeches should be like. It was heartfelt and humble, and she prepared it beforehand. But it yeah, was. I love people who actually look like they know what they're doing. She, they're actors. People. She thought through what she wanted to say, and she used this opportunity to thank. Well, she said, I'm so thankful that God chose you to bring me into this world. She said about her parents. She chose that moment to seriously thank God and her parents for all they'd done for her. I was blown away. By that, that is something to take home and really think about. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Uh, look, what about any, for you, mate? If anything stuck up for me, it was you know the fact that Jimmy Kimmel probably shouldn't have been allowed to host the show. Yeah, it was a bit wonky. <laughs> I, know, I, I mean, thought I kept on going. Billy Crystal would have done that. Oh, Billy Crystal would. Yeah. Oh, okay. But no, really, if there's a positive moment for me, it was the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Best Visual Effects. So, so not Best Director, Best <laughs> no. Actor, Actress. All those bigger I know, awards. I would have. I would have sat there and normally we're sitting there, we're enjoying you know best adapted screenplay and all those sorts of things is great they're all great but this year the academy award for best visual effects like the competition was incredible okay so there were five films nominated and i thought it was just going to go straight away to rogue one a star wars story okay special effects this is where you usually nod the huge budget productions that do really well the most successful film of last year too and and yeah yeah and i thought i guess i'm gonna walk away from that um and it didn't get it. Neither did Deepwater Horizon, which people forget. You're trying to show an oil rig on fire at sea. You're not allowed to actually blow up an oil rig. You know, so that that, that was all artificial. Kubo and the Two Strings was nominated for an incredible animation style. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And, of course, Doctor Strange with its mind-bending effects and, and multidimensional things. But what won was The Jungle Book. Mm, oh, yeah, so it did. Yeah, and The Jungle Book is, if people remember uh, when we reviewed The Jungle, Jungle Book, not only is it a great film, but... It's all shot in the studio. They never went to India to film anything. It was just all done on green screen. And yet you could not tell. It was just an amazing achievement. But why did that stand out to you most among everything at the latest Oscars? What got me basically was because someone had to envisage what something would have been like in India that was no longer even in existence, uh, another world. And when I see people think and imagine a world that no one has ever seen and bring it to our eyes, this is going to sound weird too, uh, it actually reminds me of heaven. Because yeah. we have to envisage something that we haven't seen, which we're hoping one day to go to, and we place our hope in that, you know, that, that, that we're going to be there with God, that there's going to be a world with no tears, that there is going to be a healing for all nations I mean that is going to be what we're going towards and yet at some sense we don't see it so anybody who brings imaginary worlds closer to me uh, or worlds that I have to imagine um, actually helps me think about the fact that you can have reality out there and just has to be better pictured for you well that that's as heaven as far as I'm concerned well, the Academy Awards happened last Monday. If you missed the ceremony, well, too bad because yeah. you can't catch up on it That's online. Right. You can probably Google the results if mm. you want <laughs> and you can find all the results at oscar.go.com. All right, I've been hanging out to find out what this true or false answer is. Okay, The Dish was Australia's favourite small-town film for 2000. Where was it filmed? Forbes, Parks or Wagga? Gentlemen? I'm going to say not Wagga because I used to live there and they never mentioned that. So I'm going to strike that one off the list. No one ever talked about it. No. <laughs> so which one are you going to go with? Uh, parks. So I want to go with Parks because it's set in Parks, but because of the framing of the question, I'm now going to say Forbes. Yes, in fact, you're right. It was Oi! actually filmed in Forbes. Okay, that great telescope film. The majority of the film was actually filmed in the small town of Forbes, 33 kilometres south of Parks, even though the radio telescope is in Parks because of its old historic buildings. Apparently, uh, Forbes looks more like like Parks than Parks does. <laughs> How insulting would that, that does be? does sound faintly insulting. <laughs> okay. Well, it was also filmed at Old Parliament House in Canberra and Crawford Studios in Melbourne. All right. Fascinating. Well, coming up on The Big Picture, we focus on small-town Australia through music and the new racially charged movie Jasper Jones. Welcome back. 
So, Mark's about to review this new Aussie movie set in a small town called Jasper Jones. It's coming up real soon. Before that, we thought we could best honour small Australian towns everywhere by giving you this. Gentlemen, that, of course, was a little ditty you might like to refer to as Waterloo by a little band you might like to refer to as ABBA. That was the first single from their second album, also called Waterloo. It was the winning entry at the 1974 Eurovision Song Contest, and it famously appeared in that Australian small-town classic, Muriel's Wedding, which was set in the small town of Pauper Spit in Queensland. Was that place real? No, no. I meant to actually go and check whether that's real or not. I've got to say, though, don't you wish it was? I know. I would like to live in a place called Pauper Spit, which which is where Muriel's Wedding was set. And for some reason that movie did turn into a bit of a hymn about how weird and kitchen cool it is that Australians really 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 love ABBA and that we were one of the first countries in the world that embraced ABBA to the full ABBA extent as Muriel and Rhonda up on screen showed us where you got this collision in Muriel's wedding of small town loners and weirdos dancing to ABBA and tunes like Waterloo Fremantle-based author Craig Sylvie leapt to fame with the release of his award-winning novel, Jasper Jones, a story centred on racism in a small Australian town. Well, now he's helped turn that tale into a new Australian film that revisits the bigotry of the 1960s and looks for lessons to teach this current generation. In our What Your Kids Are Watching segment this week, we take a look at a 14-year-old boy who learns that beliefs only really become brave when they're transformed into actions. Charlie, it's Jasper. Jasper Jones. Where are we going? I didn't do it. I swear I didn't do it. Charlie, I need your help. Open your face. Cut myself. Sleeping. My sister. She's gone missing. Laura Wishart has not been seen since Christmas Day. If you have any information, please come forward. We have to tell the police. No, we can't. Nobody can know. Not until we find out who did this. You might be thinking that Jasper Jones is actually the key character of this film. It's not. 
Okay, it's a little. It's all about a kid called Charlie who wakes up in the middle of the night with Jasper Jones, the local uh, mixed race boy, knocking on his window. So it's the dead of night. It, this fellow isn't particularly one of his friends. He doesn't know what's going on. But Jasper Jones says, "You've got to get out of bed. You've got to come and help me. You're the only person who'll believe me." And Charlie asks why, and he says, "Because you're an outcast too." Uh, and that sets the tone for the entire film, which is very much about uh, people who are caught on the wrong side of public opinion. So when Charlie, I'm not giving anything away, this goes into the first five minutes of the film, when Charlie takes, uh, follows Jasper through the bush and into uh, the night, he discovers himself on Jasper's property, and there is Jasper's girlfriend hanging from a rope from a tree, okay? And Jasper says... No one is going to believe me. And frankly, in the first few minutes of the film, I'm not sure I believe him either. So mm. this is the sort of situation that we're facing. The film is set in the 1960s. It's surrounded by the Vietnam War and all sorts of racial prejudice from, from against Asians, against Aboriginal people, all these sorts of things. It's very, very difficult to follow without feeling a bit ashamed about the way Australia has treated people. Going by the poster and the trailer and the fact this is a best-selling book, but for kids, I haven't actually read it, so I don't, I don't really know the story, but I thought this film was pitching itself more at a family audience, but what you're just talking about there, just the start of the film sounds really heavy. How heavy does the film actually get? Yeah, I want to say right off the bat, okay, this is for older high school kids, I would, I would say. I mean, it has got racism, it's got incest, it's got adultery, it's got murder, it's got suicide, it's got domestic violence, it's got alcoholism, and that's just the light stuff. Whoa. You know, it's just very, very heavy. Uh, and in that regard, though, it's it's honest um, and it's forthright. You know, but for that to that degree, I think parents should be aware this is not the sort of thing to throw your year seven kid in a Christmas stocking or something like that. So, so this film is uh, to some degree giving us a snapshot of a, like a typical small town in Australia in the 1960s. Is, is that what, like the aim of well, Jasper I, I Jones guess, to some degree? I, I want to say yes and no to this. Yes, it is. Uh, so it is accurate that in the 1960s and probably in many parts of Australia today, if not all of Australia, you can find these elements. I mean, there, there is racism uh, and there is, you know, suicide and pressures, pressures towards domestic violence and all sorts of things. Mm. But I want to say no too because there's a strange way of presenting racism in this film that makes it very very white now that's not to say that that uh, Caucasians are not responsible for the most blatant uses of racism in Australia today it's just the way that the film presents it it is exclusively a white problem right okay now, I and see I, what you mean. I find this a little bit of a struggle not because I'm white but because um Often people respond to racism with racism. Often people respond to violence with violence. These things are actually spread right across racial boundaries. And I think we should just be a little bit aware of this. So um, the most noble and heroic and love lovable people in the film are people of different races and mixed race, not a, of a Caucasian descent. And yet, and there's not, uh, that wouldn't be a problem in itself, except for the fact that there's just not a single redeemable white character apart from mm, Charlie. Mm. And, and that's really a bit hard to bear because, look, I come from small town Australia and that's probably not the best picture I've ever seen. I know Sam's got a question he really wants to throw at you, but very quickly, I've been hearing Jasper Jones being compared with that really famous American novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Is that a fair comparison? Oh, look, I think it's probably overreaching just a little bit. Um, <laughs> maybe a lot. Yeah, okay. Because um, you don't sound like you're a huge fan of the film. Look, it's it's a good film, you know, and it's a great teenage exploration. It's simplistic, but then what, you know, high school aimed book isn't? Okay, mm. these things are largely painted in blacks and whites. You know, gosh, there's an unfortunate comment mm -hmm. there, there was one. But. That said, um, I don't think it, it has the complexity of To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. I think the weakness of, of the book slash film is the fact that um, if you read it as an adult or if you watch it as an adult, you'll be going, yeah, we've got the issues, but we may not have got them very clearly. Now, Charlie, you mentioned he's the lead character of this film. Does he learn anything throughout the movie? Yeah, actually, I think this is one of the best things to, to take away from the film. Uh, often we pride ourselves on our beliefs. You know, so like, uh, I believe this as opposed to what somebody else believes. I'm courageous in my belief for, you know, towards supporting environmentalism or something like that. Mm. Uh, but actually what Charlie learns is that belief itself is not brave or courageous uh, until it becomes action. And so when Charlie is believing and supporting Jasper through the majority of the film, 
But he doesn't really become a brave character until he decides to tell someone or until he decides to step in and act, until he decides to do something. And I think that that's a great lesson from a Christian perspective. Because if you think about it in terms of that, there are many people who will line up and say, I believe in God, or there are many people who say, I, I believe in right and wrong. Sure, sure. You know, and yet yeah. not lining up for it. Yeah. Jasper Jones is rated M for mature themes and coarse language. It stars Tony Collette, Hugo Weaving, Levi Miller, Anguri Rice, uh, Dan Wiley, and Aaron McGrath, and it has already opened in cinemas. It's now showing. That's right. Now, gents, on our show last week, we were talking the whole show through about racism, this big topic that's in Jasper Jones. We're also talking about prejudice and inequality, and mainly as shown in some new movies about African-American people, hidden, fe- hidden figures and fences being the two main ones we talked about. Mark was recently in the US, were you not, Mark? And you noticed some truths about race relations over there. And to read all about your thoughts on that and how that links in with hidden figures and fences, you can go to insights.uca.org.au. Insights is a massive supporter of the big picture. If you go to their website, you can read Mark's thoughts about why there is this movie trend about race relations right now and what it says about how we all get along. Coming up on the big picture, things are about to get highly persuasive. We speak with a real political lobbyist, yes, a real one, before discussing the major new US movie about doing what it takes to get what you want, Miss Sloan. Welcome back to the show. Well, coming up soon, we're going to take a look at Miss Sloan, a take-no-prisoner's story about a political lobbyist who will do do anything to get her bill through the American Congress. But, of course, lobbyists aren't just limited to the United States. So, for our press record segment this week, we thought we'd like to meet a real-life denizen of Australia's political world, and he joins us on the line, Mark Makovietsky is the New South Wales Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, and he joins us on the line. Hello, Mark. And Mark, thanks very much for being part of the big picture. Well, the Australian Christian Lobby is obviously a professional lobby group, and as I understand it, you're aiming to produce a compassionate, just and moral society by working to have the Christian faith reflected in the political life of our nation. Have I got that right? Uh, absolutely correct. Oh, great. Well, look, we'll be looking at Miss Sloan shortly, a woman who attempts to get Americans to let go of their guns, which could be considered something of a lost cause. Does fighting to have Christianity taken seriously uh, in an increasingly secular nation seem something of a lost cause to you sometimes? Uh, I suppose you, you can look at it that way. It, it is extremely difficult um, uh, you know, particularly in the present context with marriage being redefined and and SRE kind of being uh, pushed out in, in various states. But, um, yeah, I mean, we are, we are essentially coming up against deep cultural currents that have been in play for, for uh, hundreds of years. And so, um, you know, to go into this, you do need to understand that it's more of a long-term battle. This is not going to be a short-term success story. Um, we, we really have to try and put the brakes on things whilst uh, working in other spheres of culture to try and reverse these trends. Is that what you remind yourself of as you sit down at your desk each day? This is a long-term battle. I'm not in it for just today. Well, I mean, I, I think I would be naive to, to think that if I could just prevent bad laws coming in and maybe proposing a couple of good laws, that that would be the end of it. Um, I, I've, my background is, is kind of um, looking quite deeply into, into the questions um, that we're confronting today. And, and the fact is that they haven't emerged over the last 10 years or even... You know, in the last you know, 60 years, so they've been they've been around, you know, more or less since the Enlightenment. Okay. Well, how far will you go to get a politician to a politician to reflect a Christian point of view in their work? I mean, we're assuming you're not going to stoop to anything illegal. I'm sure you haven't got sort of huge wads of cash you're sort of mailing out to them or anything like that. But mm. embarrassment, protests, these are almost part and parcel with lobbying. Uh, how do you draw the line? What do you do and don't mm. do? I mean, those those uh, kind of actions we we uh, usually associate with what you'd say is the left, you know, the get up kind of groups, um, and obviously uh, that works to some extent. The the saying the noisy wheel gets the grease uh, is is a truism, um, but the thing that distinguishes ACL from a number of other groups and and other Christian groups for that matter is that we tend to favour using honey over vinegar. So. Um, we recognise the importance of relationship and mutual respect with uh, the people we're dealing with, and what we found uh, over the experience of you know the last um, decade and a half or so is that it, it tends to open doors and allows us to have conversations with groups that might not uh, the other groups might not have the opportunity to have. So, um, you know, once we've done that, if if we haven't been successful, then we do we we do try and um, 
turn up the pressure, so to speak, with online petitions, MP visits, letter writing, and and getting out into the media. Um, and so, I mean, it's 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 two pronged, but uh, we tend to we tend to try and um, do the, the person-to-person thing first. You're actually trying to convince people before you try and drive them in any particular direction. Well, that's direction. right, because you, you you don't win their hearts um, by protesting. All you do is force them um, through discomfort and. Um, I don't think that's actually a, 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 a recipe for long-term success, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. So, look, some politicians come into the game, though. They are adamant that Christianity is the last thing they want to see uh, in any way affecting society. And I guess Christians' voters, you know, have found that to be, gee, a disheartening thing over time. I, I feel like it's almost, as a voter myself, I feel it's almost as though nobody stands for anything beyond an opinion poll what would you say to a, a Christian voter uh, who almost feels like they're ready to give up on the political process? No, well, I, I mean, I, I, I totally understand their frustrations, um, and it takes a lot to stay in the process when when it gives very little back in terms of consolation. Um, but the thing is, if we abandon the field and if we if we you know start abstaining from voting or getting involved in the political process altogether. Um, that just leaves our opponents and the enemy free to do do as he pleases. So, so I think it's important that we re- we recognise um, that we do have a voice, and that this you know distinction that they put between church and state is 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 a false one. Christians have a, as right as much as anyone else to actually express an opinion and to have their uh, values inform inform the society that they live in. Well, speaking of Christians, you're one. Um, where do you take your inspiration from, particularly if it seems like you're hitting brick walls? Well, I'm always mindful of the fact that God created the universe and his laws are directed toward our happiness. And so as a society, I think we've lost sight of this fact. And we seem to be repeating the original sin in a lot of sense because there's clearly a distrust of God and a rejection of his authority. So I'm convinced that our lawmakers help bring about a happy society when its laws reflect his and I'm happy to work for that purpose. Uh, so any success that comes, comes from God, and all he asks is for me to make the effort. So right. I'd certainly like him to grant us more success in our endeavours, but nevertheless, he sends me consolations through the time of the battles and that things aren't always in vain. Made all power to you. Mark Makovietsky, the New South Wales Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, thanks for being part of the show. Thanks, Mark. Elizabeth Sloan is an extremely powerful woman in US politics. Having a way with words and campaign strategies, she's a lobbying force who gets to take on her biggest challenge yet, guns. Miss Sloan is at cinemas now and stars Jessica Chastain in the lead role. And Ben checked it out and got clued up on wheeling, dealing and whether it's all worth it. Lobbying is about foresight. But anticipating your opponent's moves. She's your enemy now. And devising countermeasures. How the hell did she manage that? You're a piece of work, Elizabeth. I was hired to win. I use whatever resource I have. That's a really good promo. I really, mm. I really like that one, the ticking clock thing. Jessica Chastain is Elizabeth Sloan. When we meet her in Miss Sloan, she's in front of a, a congressional senator inquiry into her. And then across the course of the movie Miss Sloan, we'd, we, understand, we come to understand why she's being dragged in front of this uh, inquiry. And, we, and so we flash back kind of three months. And in the course of three months, we get to see her wheeling and dealing in Washington, D.C. as a lobbyist, going from one firm to another because she uh, comes to take on this biggest challenge of her professional career, the gun lobby. But she's actually going up against the gun lobby because the gun lobby wants to get in some, like, there's some legislation trying to be passed that's going to make it harder to buy a gun. The gun lobby doesn't want that. But she is on the side of saying we want need more regulation. This is a real powerful, powerful role for Jessica Chastain. What difference do you think it makes in the movie that it's actually a woman lobbyist we're looking at as opposed to a man? I'm still trying to work it out, Mark, because it's a really good question. And I was thinking about it all the way through watching Miss Sloan, that if Miss Sloan was a guy, what what would I think? Jessica Chastain really chucks herself into the role. She's great. Mm. Uh, and she's so, and even that clip that we just played, like, demonstrates it to some degree. She's very icy, got, like, gift to the gab, right? Can just basically say anything and persuade people and is super smart and ahead of the game and all this kind of thing. But she, you know, amongst her ruthlessness and her business focus, and she's a woman who basically is just given her whole life over to work and trying to win at her job. 
what you come out with, I think, is a very uh, sterile, very distant woman. Whereas I think if a guy was in this role, and just think of anyone from, say, George Clooney, like he was in Michael Clayton, or someone like Al Pacino, one of those kind of guys, you tend to get a bit more charm and even a bit more likability from a bloke. And I don't know whether the issue is the people who are writing the characters, the performers, or whether it's me as a viewer. It's a as I'm watching unnaturalness, it. you think? Like, yeah, whether it's just an issue of seeing a woman in this particular type of role, and whether it's the attributes of a woman when she becomes really cold and she gets distant, or is it just the character? I'm not, I'm not really sure. So it makes a keen difference, I think. And as a result, I think Miss Sloan almost suffers for it because it keeps distancing you and distancing you, whereas I think if a bloke was in the role, it might have dragged you in a bit closer. But that's not the only issue with the film. Okay. So how does it end? <laughs> wait, wait, like, I don't, don't, want to, don't want to give the game away, but I just found it wasn't as gripping as its clever twists and turns would like to think it is. We've mm. seen a lot of movies that have set, been set behind the scenes, particularly in American politics and a lot of TV shows as well. So I just, Michael Clayton, I mentioned Michael Clayton, that's about lawyers, but we've got House of Cards more, most recently and all kinds of um, presidential movies. We did a top five list the other week. Go to thebigpicturewebsite.com. You can check that out. We've seen all this before. Aaron Sorkin has done so much in this realm, particularly with The West Wing. It just felt like, even though Miss Sloan has got great cast, really good performances, fine writing, and an intriguing plot, the longer it went along, I just thought it's almost a bit too smart for its own good and, and just goes on. It goes on too long. It's about 15, 20 minutes, way too long. Also, I couldn't understand whether I'm watching a movie about personal morality or about national morality. And I think it confused the two. Is it a message movie or is it a character movie? I don't think it really understood what it was trying to do overall, Miss Sloan. Hmm. Ben, you mentioned that uh, Jessica Chastain's character takes some real drastic steps to try and get ahead, whatever she can. Is this a film about winning at all costs? Yeah, I, th- I think so, because that, that's the, one of the clearest messages that gets drummed home throughout Miss Sloan. And, and again, Jessica Chastain is an excellent representation of someone who gives their life over entirely to, to winning and then even and showing the detriment as well. So it's not like the film's elevating this to a really high status and saying mm. you should go after this. It shows the uh, everything from uh, the, the physical uh, issues to the mental and the, and the spiritual, to some degree, issues that, uh, that Miss Sloan goes through as a result of throwing herself into the cause of winning at all costs. So as I'm watching that, I'm thinking about this is a really great kind of portrait or pointer back to the words of Jesus where he, like very famously, people have been trying to like thinking about this ever since he said it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul in the process? People have been like thinking about that for centuries and centuries that will continue to because there's something at that mm. that we all know and recognize. And Miss Sloan, for all its failings, for as much as it went on a little bit and it just wasn't as great as it thought it was, should leave you thinking about whether it is worth winning at all costs and point you back to those words of Jesus to discover what actually was he on about and like what could you do otherwise than forfeit your soul. Okay, well, Miss Sloan opened last Thursday and is showing at cinemas all around the country. It stars Jessica Chastain, Mark Strong, John Lithgow and Gugu Mbatha Raw. Well, I think you pronounced that correctly. Thank well, at least you. It Points to me. <laughs> Rated M for course language and a sex scene. All right, coming up on the big picture, Russ Matthew lobbies us on this satire, Thank You for Smoking, Mm. and Mark votes on the top five political dramas of all time. Oh, looking forward to that. Welcome back to the show. Well, before the break, we chatted with a real lobbyist, a real live one, and Ben shared his thoughts on US lobbyist drama Miss Sloan. So much lobbying got us to thinking about Thank You for Smoking, an acclaimed satire about a guy with a really, really tough job. So, for the Vault segment this week, we asked Insights reviewer and former salesman Russ Matthews to lobby us on why we should check out Thank You for Smoking. Russ, lobbyist for Thank You for Smoking. Thank You for Smoking, 2005 comedy drama by director Jason Reitman and um, has the lead Aaron Eckhart, who actually is Nick Naylor, lobbyist for the tobacco industry um, to try and do all that he can to try and sell more cigarettes. So you're telling us to watch a movie about a bloke who's trying to flog more and more cigarettes. Well, I'm going to probably have to say no, that would probably be wrong, even though that's what it sounds like with the setup. But really, 
what you want to do is really look at a film that's really talking about the reconciliation of a father and a son. Someone who's going through kind of the moral conundrums of trying to lobby for a much-hated organization such as the tobacco industry, but yet then looking at his son and what he's trying to do in raising this 12-year-old boy um, in regards to that. So really, it's wrong in saying that it's just a film about a cigarette lobbyist. It's really more about reconciliation as a, as a father and a son, and it would be a film probably for families to even consider for their mature children to be able to go through and consider, huh, maybe we can look at how we, this can actually benef benefit our relationship. Oh, you're pretty good at this lobbying thing, Russ, <laughs> even for a film that sounds as difficult as Thank You for Smoking to get behind. Does this film, when you were watching it, remind you of your past career? You were a, a marketer, a salesman for a major American drug company. Does Thank You for Smoking remind you a little bit of yourself? Oh, you know, it definitely does. Nick Naylor uh, is one of those characters, not that I was ever as proficient and great with the wordsmith thing as this guy was. He's one of those guys that everybody loves or wants to be because they, he just has the answer for everything and everything turns around and he wins every argument. But yet then also everybody hates um, because he wins every argument. So yes, it does. It reflects my career. Never that I was at to the level of a, say, a Nick Naylor, but it definitely reflects kind of what I used to do for a career. Okay, Mr. Lobbyist, what, el what else can we take away from Thank You for Smoking? It's an MA15 plus film, so it's obviously for mature audiences, but for the maturer people out there, what could they take away from Thank You for Smoking? This is one of the best written films. That I, I can still say probably would be my top 10 of some of my favorite films that I've actually enjoyed. It's a satire, so it really kind of goes against, it's not really a film promoting cigarettes, but really kind of going against those, even though the lead character is actually lobbying for cigarettes. But he has this brilliant ability to be able to kind of utilize um, human nature and morality and kind of bend it in a way to be able to kind of show us kind of the way the world kind of works. I love, always love the moral flexibility, as he calls it. And That's what Nick Naylor says, there's moral flexibility? Moral flexibility in what he does, even when he was talking with his son about how you should live your life, is there's a moral flexibility when it comes to that. And I think one of the things we really can take away from a film like this is considering where do you base your morals? But Nick would probably say he bases it in himself and what he believes, but really do you base it in something outside of yourself and something that goes a little deeper than that? Thank you for lobbying us, Russ, and thank you for smoking. There are plenty of political stories over at attorneynews.com.au as well. If you'd like to lead more into that, it's inspired by Russ and the rest of the show so far. From the Australian Christian Lobby, who we spoke with earlier, to Donald Trump and the immigration policies of the Australian government, attorneynews.com.au is the place to go to get Australian insights into current affairs, which mainstream media just don't offer. Attorneynews.com.au, a great sponsor of the program. We've had one hard-hitting political drama, so why not cap the show off with five more? <laughs> why not? So, uh, That's what you know, I say. It is top five time, my favourite time of every, every show. And this week, Mark, you've gone looking for the top five political thrillers and chillers None of which are set in Manila. Like oh, that's a spoiler. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure they're stick not around gouts. then. Mark, take it away. Well, yes, voters one and all. I've travelled the highways and byways of political intrigue from the statesman-like drama of Lincoln to the disturbing truths of Abraham Lincoln, vampire slayer. <laughs> and I do say <laughs> truths there. You know what I mean. And assembled a parliament of films you'd be glad to vote into your Blu-ray player. Well, let's begin. Five. To be honest, when I was looking at this collection, I thought to myself, I've got to start theming. And why? Because it allows me to mention far, far more than five films. That, I'm sure people have picked that up if they're regular listeners of the show, but I also try to do exactly the same thing. You pick a themed idea, one movie encapsulates it, but it allows you to mention sometimes ten other movies that you can squeeze into your top five list. Watch in awe. Okay, so <laughs> at position number five, I thought, you know, let's put a political hot potato. There's often a film that's got a whole idea of the big issue that comes can't be touched or or has to be fought. Frost-Nixon is the issue of truth. You've got Selma, they're trying to get voting rights for African-Americans. Or Armistad, okay, slavery, uh, are slaves property or are they people? And the political hot potato I settled on coming in at number five is... 13 Days. from That's the best political hot potato movie oh, you've ever yeah. seen? Oh, yeah, the Cuban Missile Crisis is incredible. I mean, if you watch the tension roll out in 13 Days, so basically it's John F. Kennedy's White House and they're trying to deal with the fact that Khrushchev is going to send missiles into Cuba. It's an incredible tense time. It's brilliant performances and it stars Kevin Costner in a good role. 
Hey, he's, he's done a few, that guy. Yeah, JFK Dan- also, which may or may not turn up on your list. It went Dances with Wolves, JFK, 13 days, end of career. And so <laughs> I'd just like to say that um, it's well worth getting out, even if you're a little Costner shy, 13 days. Four. Coming in at number four, I thought four is not actually any reference to Thor. Coming in at number four is the political games that go on at arm's length. You know, there's a bunch of films that aren't about politicians but are really about political drama. Okay, so you've got The Constant Gardener, who's kind of like, you know, the political drama unfolding in Africa and, and drug companies and such. You've got All the President's Men, mm, you know, mm. the journalists running around trying to find the truth in the Watergate Hotel. Um, and the one I settled on, which I thought was really good, is from 2005 is Syriana. Have oh, that George it? Clooney movie. Yeah, it's brilliant. So you've got George Clooney, you've got Matt Damon, you've got Amanda Peet. Um, it's a brilliant film about the oil magnates and uh, the companies themselves that are manipulating the oil process and how they're in bed with um, various political parties around the world and how they manipulate things and, in fact, countries so that they can get a better price at the pump. Well, look, Syriana is a brilliant film if you like that sort of tense chase all the way through. If you like your political thrillers hanging on the edge, well, Syriana is one for you. Three. But it is nothing compared to number three. Now... One of the subsets of political films is the unquiet life of the political employee. That's not quite as catchy as Hot Potato movie. It's not a Hot Potato. (laughs) The unquiet life of the political employee. Is that what you said? Yes. Let me me tell you. Uh, How about The Butler? Okay, an entire film based around a man who has served as a butler in the White House. But for that's not your choice, though, because that was kind of lame, that movie. That's not my Thank choice. you. Thank <laughs> you. Or, okay, In the Line of Fire. Okay, again, now we're talking about the Secret Service and their ability to protect the President of the United States. Or what about Patriot Games? Okay, it's again, it's just about a CIA analyst. So it's a politi- they're all political films. We're about those sort of second or third tier players, you know, in these stories. Uh, a Man for All Seasons is a classic if you want to go even further back. But my choice was The Hunt for Red October. Okay, The Hunt for Red October is a brilliant political thriller that involves nuclear submarines. What could be more thrilling than mm. that? And it's got Sean Connery as a Russian. My only memory of that movie is watching that film when I was around 14 or 15 years old and I fell asleep in the cinema. Convince me why I should re-watch The Hunt for Red October. Alec Baldwin. <laughs> He's Alec in it? Baldwin. That's it. Oh, he is in it. He was once young. Okay? <laughs> but he still had great hair. Uh, uh, yes, great hair, both young and old. Alec Baldwin's hair it does a superb job <laughs> wow. as a CIA analyst in The Hunt for Red October, a man sort of <laughs> taken out of his depth and suddenly thrown in to do a job of an operative um, at a, in an in a ocean-going crisis. Look, The Hunt for Red October is based on the best-selling Tom Clancy novel. And again, if you like your... You know, your political thrillers thrilling to the bone, then The Hunt for Red October, if you haven't seen it, you've got to catch this one. Two. But at number two is one of my all time favourite political films. Now, this is another sort of uh, category the political comedy. Okay, there are plenty of political comedies out there. A Dr. Strangelove, oh. or How I Learned to Stop Worrying about uh, worrying and Love the Bomb. You know, so great, mm. and slightly disappointed you haven't had it on the list. Well, but so it's great, it's thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, Peter Sellers, it's an honourable mention. It's fantastic. Um, and in fact, I think the winner of this category, the political comedy, um, is a bit of a natural successor to Dr. Strangelove. But let's not forget other ones that made room in political comedy. Um, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Oh, yeah. You know, that yeah. is really worth seeing. People, if you think, oh, no, there's no way I could sit through a silent film for two hours. Honestly, The Great Dictator is laugh out loud funny. And an amazingly bold have a go at the Nazi regime at that time. It was an incredibly brave film. Absolutely. And I think one that actually is is insightful in its guffaws is Wag the Dog. Ah, so that's so what's that's coming at number two. Number two, Wag the Dog, 1997s, directed by Barry Levinson, starring Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro and Annie Heckey. Um, and Heckey, sorry. Um, basically, this is a great film about uh, an American presidency in trouble and so deciding it will manufacture its own crisis mm-hmm. uh, and bringing in a Hollywood producer to, to manufacture this. It made me proud to be a producer. I watched this, I thought to myself, that's right. This is what we can all aspire to, turning the free world on its head for the sake of a political game. I'd love to do this. And if there's anybody out there looking for a problem to be fixed, I'm your man. One. But number one. 
Before you unveil this, no, Mark, please. have you noticed about your list that all of these are American film or set in the American political system? Did you consider that there are other political systems around the world? There are other political systems around the world. Um, personally, I'm actually going to I, I, I'm going to reference a couple in a minute, but I think that um, I was thinking about Australia, great Australian political thrillers. I didn't get very far, mm. you know. But um, if I was going to pick one, you know, particularly in the political comedy area, I probably would have picked a TV series. I probably would have picked The Hollow Men. Yeah, have you seen yeah. that? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it's great. Like a great case yeah. of, or Utopia. Okay. Or Utopia is another one about you know that would have been in that sort of like tier, second tier level sort of people who have to do the jobs, the mm-hmm. unquiet life. But the number one's gone to number one is about the seedy race to the top. Okay, you, you've seen films like The Ides of March or The American President, but none of them do it better than Primary Colours, mm. 1998, uh, directed by Mike Nichols. Now, if just as an aside, if you haven't seen Mike Nichols' films and you're thinking of yourself as a film buff, you've done yourself a disservice. You've got to go see The Graduate. You've got to see Silkwood. You've got to see Postcards from the Edge or Remains of the Day. And Mike Nichols directed primary colors which is basically a, a not too distant spoof on bill clinton's own rise to fame okay so bill clinton is in this case of well, the bill clinton characters played by john travolta who does a brilliant job as a can as a candidate from the south aiming for the presidency uh, and basically it's based on the sad conviction the best candidate might have to do the worst things in order to get into a position to do good eventually. Mm-hmm. Okay, And the only way you can swallow that sort of argument, so prevalent in politics today, the idea that we've got a phrase like baby kissing, you do these good things so that you can get eventually to do what you need to do. The only way you can really swallow that argument is by believing that the big tasks are somehow more important than the little tasks, that somehow me in public is more important than me in private. But of course, God sees both halves. And that's what we see in primary colours. That's what it's all about. So we have the opportunity to make the most of it, to do it the right way. You know, as well as I do, there are plenty of people playing this game that don't think that way. They're willing to sell their souls crawl through sewers, a lot of people divide them, play on their worst fears for nothing, just for the prize. I don't care. I'm sorry, but I'm not comparing the players. I don't like the game. I love this film, seriously. Have you seen Primary Colors? I haven't. I have not either. This is your Saturday night. <laughs> this is it. Are we okay, getting together? Are we going to have a slumber party? Well, you can actually come over. I will, well, I won't. I probably won't sit with you. I've seen it too many times. But no, oh. I will set it up for you. All right, Ben. <laughs> right. Mark's proposed this, but he's not actually one of, he doesn't want to be involved. No, no, okay. So okay, that's okay. what we're going to do. What, come Saturday night next week? Chateau but what about on the show next week, gentlemen? Forget the Saturday night slumber party. What are we going to do on the show? Well, disability and outer space come together in the teen drama The Space Between Us. And we will take on the biggest monkey of them all, Kong 3D on Skull Island. <laughs> and find out what happens when X-Men grow old in Logan. And I will not be an X-Man next week. I'll just be Ben McKeggan. <laughs> and I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 